And George Harlan is a British actor who specializes in readings from Charles Dickens. In fact, he's been guest performer here for a number of uh, Dickens Fellowship societies, as well as on the liner Queen Elizabeth II, which for the moment is out of commission as an excursion liner, since been requisitioned by the British Navy for other purposes that have been making headlines recently. But uh, George Harlan is in town, and he's graciously agreed to have to read some passages, uh, some of the portraits from Dickens in a moment, his readings, and perhaps how he himself first came to Dickens, too, after this message. So is George Harland actor. When, I suppose this is an easy question to ask an Englishman, your first discovery of Dickens? When I was at school, a schoolboy of uh, about eight years old, and uh, one of the uh, other classes in the school gave a performance of Christmas Carol, and I saw it and was hooked. Um, when I reached that same grade, I took part in a performance of it, and... Ever since then, Christmas Carol has been the sort of the, 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 my guide into mm. into Dickens. So that when I first did a solo adaptation, naturally I turned to Christmas Carol, which is perhaps the best loved of mm. the Dickens stories. And uh, it sort of grew from there. And now I've extended the repertoire to cover all sorts of uh, excerpts and characters. And using, in the main, Dickens' own scripts that he wrote for himself, for his own one-man shows. We should, we should point out that, as Eminem Williams has in his tours of America and other parts of the world, doing Dickens yes. with the beard, and you have your own, you know, and uh, his costume. Dickens himself well, must have been a masterful performer, wasn't he? I think he was, yeah. because reading the um, his working notes on the original scripts, uh, his underlinings, his pauses, and his little marginal notes that says uh, it gives him warning of special things coming up. For instance, in the uh, uh, murder in Oliver Twist, about two or three pages before the murder actually comes up, he's got marginal notes saying murder coming, murder coming, mm. which gives him indications so, sort of building up the tension. Mm. You, perhaps you, can, you might offer that somewhere during this hour. Yes. Uh, Bill Sykes and his conscience after the murder of Nancy. But now, there was something from, from Pickwick Papers. Well, Pickwick Papers went extremely well for the first few episodes, and then sales started tailing off. So Dickens had to find a new character, and he introduced a character called Sam Weller, who became a, an immediate success, and I think really took over from, the, uh, from Mr. Pickwick, in his popularity. This is a little scene when Sam Weller is writing a valentine. Sam Weller set himself down with nine penneth of brandy and water, pulled out a sheet of gilt-edged letter paper and a hard-nib pen. Then, looking carefully at the pen to make sure there were no hairs on it, and dusting down the table so that there might be no bread under the paper, Sam tucked up the cuffs of his coat, squared his elbows, and composed himself to write. Now, to ladies and gentlemen who are not in the habit of devoting themselves practically to the science of penmanship, writing a letter is no easy task. It being always considered necessary in such cases for the writer to recline his head on his left arm so as to place his eyes as nearly possible on level with the paper, 
while glancing sideways at the letters he's constructing to form with his tongue imaginary characters to correspond. Those motions, although unquestionably of the greatest assistance to original competition, retard in some degree the progress of the writer, and Sam had unconsciously been a full hour and a half writing words in small text, smearing out wrong letters with his little finger, and then putting in new ones which required going over very often to render them visible through the old blots, when he was roused by the opening of the door and the entrance of his father. Well, Sammy, said the father, well, me Prussian blue, and what's the last bullet in on stepmother? Mrs. Veller passed a very good night, and is uncommon perverse and unpleasant this morning. Signed upon oath, S. Veller Esquire Senior. That's the last one was issued, Sammy. No better yet. Oh, all the symptoms aggravated. But what's that you're doing, our pursuit of knowledge under difficulties, Sammy? I've done now. I've been writing a letter. So I see. Not to a young woman, I hope. No, it's no use saying it ain't. It's a... it's a valentine. A what? A valentine. Oh, Samuel. Samuel, I didn't think you'd have done it. After all the warning you've had of your father's wicious propensities, after all I said to you on this very subject, that you're actually seeing and being in the company of your own stepmother which I should have thought was a moral lesson as no man could ever have forgotten to his dying day. Oh, I didn't think you'd have done it. These reflections were too much for the good old man. He raised Sam's tumbler to his lips and drank off its contents. Well, what's the matter now? Oh, never mind, Sammy. It'll be a very agonising trial to me at my time of life, but I'm pretty tough. That's one consolation, as the wary old turkey remarked when the farmer said he'd be afeard he should be obliged to kill him off for the London market. What'll be a trial? To see you married, Sammy. To see you, a deluded victim, and thinking in your innocence that it's all very capital. Oh, it's a dreadful trial of a father's feeling that here, Sammy. Oh, nonsense. I ain't going to get married. Don't fret yourself about that. Now, look, I know you're a judge of these things, so order in your pipe and I'll read you the letter. Now, there. So, Mr Weller divested himself of his upper coat and lighting a pipe and placing himself in front of the fire with his back towards it so that he could feel its full heat and reclining against the mantelpiece at the same time, turned towards Sam and with a countenance greatly mollified by the softening influence of tobacco, requested him to fire away. Sam dipped his pen into the ink to be ready for any corrections and began with a very theatrical air. Lovely creature. Stop. Taint poetry, is it? No. Very glad to hear it. Poetry's unnatural. No man ever talked poetry except a beetle on boxing morning. Never you let yourself down to talk poetry, my boy. Begin again. Mr. Weller resumed his pipe with critical solemnity, and Sam once more commenced. Lovely creature, I feel myself a damned... Stop! That ain't proper! Oh, <laughs> no, it ain't damned. It's shamed. There's a blot there. I feel myself ashamed. Very good. Go on. Feel myself ashamed and completely, sir... Sir... Oh, I forget what this here word is. Then why don't you look at it, then? 
I am looking at it, but there's another blot. There's a C and a I and a D. Circumvented, preps. No, no, it ain't that. Circumscribed, that's it. Well, it ain't such a good word as circumvented, Sammy. Think not? No, nothing like it. But don't you think it means more? Well, perhaps it's a more tender word, Sammy. Go on. I feel myself ashamed and completely circumscribed in addressing of you, for you are a nice girl and nothing but it. Oh, that's a very pretty sentiment. Yeah, I thought it was rather good myself. What I like in this here style of writing, Sammy, is there ain't no calling of names in it. No weenuses, nor anything of that kind. I mean, what's the good of calling a young woman a weenus or an angel? Well, what indeed? Well, you might as well just as well call her a, a griffin or a unicorn or a king's arms at once, which is very well known to be a collection of fabulous animals. Well, just as well. Drive on, Sammy. Sam complied with the request, his father continuing to smoke with a mixed expression of wisdom and complacency, which was particularly edifying. Before I see you, I thought all women was alike. So they are. But now I find what a regular, soft-headed, incredulous turnip I must have been, for there ain't nobody like you, though I like you better than nothing at all. I thought I'd better make that rather strong. Mr Weller nodded approvingly. So I take the privilege of the day, Mary, my dear, as the gentleman in difficulties did when he walked out of a Sunday, to tell you that the first and only time I've seen you, your likeness was took on my art in much quicker time and brighter colours than ever a likeness was took by the profile machine, which perhaps you may have heard of, Mary, my dear, although it does finish a portrait and put a frame and glass on complete with a hook at the end to hang it up by, and all in two minutes and a quarter. Oh, I'm afeard that word is on the poetical, Sammy. No, it don't. Accept of me, Mary, my dear, as your valentine, and think that over what I've said. My dear Mary, I will now conclude. That's all. It's rather a sudden pull-up, ain't it, Sammy? Oh, not a bit on it. You see, she'll wish there was more, and that is the great art of letter-writing. Well, something in that. I wish your stepmother had only conducted her conversation on the same genteel principles. But ain't you going to sign it? Well, that's a difficult, you see. I don't know who to sign it. Well, sign it, Vella. That won't do. You never sign a Wellentine with your own name. Sign it, Pickwick, then. That's a very good name and an easy one to spell. Or the very thing. I could end with a verse. What do you think? Oh, I don't like it, Sammy. I never knowed a respectable coachman as wrote poetry, except one, as made an affecting copy of verses the night afore he was hung for highway robbery, and he was only a Camberwell man, so that's no rule. But Sam was not to be dissuaded from the poetical idea that had occurred to him. So he signed the letter, Your Love Sick Pick Wick and having folded it in a very intricate manner, squeezed a downhill direction in one corner to Mary, housemaid at Mr Nupkins, Mayor's Ipswich, Suffolk, and put it into his pocket, wafered and ready for the general post. And that's Sam Weller or Sam Veller. Sam Veller. <laughs> Valentine. Yeah. So the Cockney's Cockney and his father, 
to be cockney with their nuts. Yes, yes. Now, they have a combination way, sometimes the W, the V. Uh, did Dickens ever know about, I'm sure he did, about cockney rhyming, slang? You know, I'm sure yeah. he did, uh, because it's, it must have been going on for years yeah. and years and years. He, he never actually uses it in his in yeah. his books. And his um, his Cockney dialect seems very strange to us now, because it's it's almost like a Jewish... Um, yeah, I, I was going to say, it had a Jewish intonation. Mm. And I always wondered about Sam Weller, you know, whether because we know there are many Jewish Cockneys yes. in Petticoat Lane. Yeah. But I just wondered about Sam... But this, this, it's Cockney, London Cockney. Mm. And he, he always, uh, when he does Sarah Gamp, uh, who was a Cockney nurse, uh, he, he uses exactly the same. The, the, um, the V's became V's and W's, W's and so on. And it's a, it's a strange thing because I suppose it was the, the Cockney slang, the sound at, the, at that particular period, which was what, in the, around about the 18... 1840s to about 1860s. Because when we say something Dickensian, hmm. we, of course he created that whole world in which the reality is is Dickensian. Yes, you know, yes. The names of people that tell us things. Oh, aren't they marvellous? And, and yes. also the situations. Melodramatic. Suddenly you realise the truth is melodramatic. Yes. I've got, I think, um, I was uh, lecturing to um, a college class in New Paltz last week, and uh, I said that I thought this ability that he has to encapsulate the character of a person, the description of a character, in a few lines. You know, he talks about Mrs. Uh, 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 Mrs. Podsnap being a fine figure of a woman, plenty of bone, neck and nostrils like a rocking horse. Mm -hmm. And that immediately yeah, captures a picture. And I said, this is probably due to his... His journalistic training, because he was a, a newspaper journalist. They observe the, the veneerings. And the you know, veneer, isn't that a lovely the name? name the veneerings. They had that veneer. <laughs> yes, yes. I wanted to make in their it brand society. new house. <laughs> the brand new yeah, people. Right, it's, right. It's marvelous. Right. Ma the marvelous descriptions. We'll take a slight pause now with with George Harlan, British actor who primarily you you do another role, but the readings of of Dickens, in this case Sam Weller and his father and that Valentine. And after this pause we'll resume with perhaps Bill Sykes and his conscience and something called Captain Murderer in a moment after this message. And so resuming with, with George Harland and Dickens. Now in uh, Oliver Twist there's a powerful, dramatic, horrendous sequence involving Sykes, the brutal Sykes, and Nancy. And perhaps you ought to set the scene for this. Yes, Nancy has been suspected of uh, betraying the gang, and she's been followed by one of Fagin's spies, who reports the whole episode to him. And when Bill Sykes returns from a burglary, uh, Fagin tells him of this, and actually encourages him to go and uh, do away with Nancy. And um, Sykes goes back to his lodgings where he finds Nancy and he murders her and clubs her to death. And this is a little thing after the, um, after the murder itself, which leads into the, the great chase. Now Dickens worked on this episode 
the whole episode t uh, takes about 50 minutes. He worked on this for about three years, adapting and cutting until he got it absolutely right, and it became an obsession with him to perform it. Uh, modern psychiatrists say that he was, in actual fact, going through a sort of ritual murder of his wife, from whom he was estranged. Um, there are all sorts of theories. But it's good drama, and he concentrated about the last five or six chapters of the book into this 50-minute episode. And the actual hunting and chase of Sykes after he's been, after the murder, takes about a couple of chapters. In the adaptation that he did, he did it in about a page. So it tells you the, the concentration, the pure concentration. This is just after the murder. He had not moved. He'd been afraid to stir. There'd been a moan and a motion of the hand, and with terror added to range, he'd struck and struck again. Once he threw a rug over it, but it was worse to fancy the eyes and imagine them moving towards him than to see them glaring upward as if watching the reflection of the pool of gore that quivered and danced in the sunlight on the ceiling. He plucked it off again, and there was the body, mere flesh and blood, no more, but such flesh. And oh, so much blood! He struck a light, kindled a fire and thrust the club into it. There was a hair upon the end which shrunk into a light cinder and whirled up the chimney. Even that frightened him. But he held the weapon till it broke and then piled it on the coals to burn away and smolder into ashes. He washed himself and rubbed his clothes. There were spots upon them that would not be removed, so he cut the pieces out and burnt them. Oh, those stains were dispersed about the room. The very feet of his dog were bloody. All this time... He had never once turned his back upon the corpse. He now moved backward towards the door, dragging the dog with him, shut the door softly, locked it, took the key and left the house. As he gradually left the town behind him all that day and plunged that night into the solitude and darkness of the country, he was haunted by that ghastly figure following at his heels. He could hear its garments rustle in the leaves, and every breath of wind came laden with that last low cry. If he stopped, it stopped. If he ran, it followed, not running too, but that would have been a relief, but borne on one slow, melancholy air that never rose or fell. At times he turned to beat the phantom off, though it should look him dead, but his hair rose on his head and his blood stood still, for it had turned with him and was behind him still. He leaned his back against a bank and felt that it stood above him visibly out against the cold night sky. He threw himself upon the road. At his head it stood, silent, erect, still, a human gravestone with its epitaph in blood. Suddenly, towards daybreak, he took the desperate resolution of going back to London. There's somebody there to speak to, at all events. I'd in place two in the gang's old house on Jacob's Island, I'll risk it. 
Choosing the least frequented roads for his journey back, he resolved to lie concealed within a short distance of the city until it was dark night again, and then proceed to his destination. He did this, and he limped in among three affrighted fellow thieves, the ghost of himself. Blanched face, sunken eyes, hollow cheeks. His dog at his heels, covered with mud, lame, half-blind, crawling as if those stains had poisoned him. All three men shrank away. None of them spoke. Where are you? You will keep this house. Do you mean to sell me or let me lie here till the hunt is over? Well, you may stop if you think it's safe, but what man ever escaped from the men that are after you? A great sound coming on like a rushing fire. Oh, tracked so soon. The hunt was up already. Lights, lights gleaming below, voices in loud and earnest talk. Hurry tramp of footsteps on the wooden bridges over Folly Ditch. A beating on the heavy door and window shutters of the house. A waving crowd in the outer darkness like a field of corn moved by an angry storm. The, the tide was in when I come up. Give me a rope. I may drop from the top of the house at the back end of Folly Ditch and clear off that way or be stifled. Now give me a rope. No one stirred. They pointed to where they kept such things and the murderer hurried with a strong cord to the housetop. Of all the terrified yells that ever fell on mortal ears, none could exceed the furious cry when he was seen. Some shouted at those who were nearest to set fire to the house. Others adjured the officers to shoot him dead. Others, with execrations, clutched and tore at him in the empty air. Some called for ladders, some for sledgehammers. Some rang with torches to and fro to seek them. I promise fifty pounds, cried Mr. Brownlow from the nearest bridge, to the man who takes the murderer alive. Sykes set his foot against the stack of chimneys, fastened one end of the rope firmly round it, and with the other made a strong running noose by the aid of his hands and teeth. With a cord round his back, he could let himself down within less distance of the ground than his own height. He had his knife ready in his hand to cut the cord and then drop. At the instant that he brought the loop over his head before slipping it beneath his armpits, looking behind him on the roof, he threw up his arms and yelled, The eyes again! Staggering as if struck by lightning, he lost his balance and tumbled over the parapet. The noose was at his neck. It ran up with his weight as a bowspring and swift as the arrow it speeds. He fell five and thirty feet and hung with his open knife clenched in his stiffening hand. And the dog which had laid concealed till now, ran backwards and forwards on the parapet with a dismal howl, and collecting himself for a jump, springs for the dead man's shoulders. Missing his aim, he fell into the ditch, turning over as he went, and striking against a stone, dashed out his brains, and lay dead at his master's feet. Of course, that's the Dickensian touch, too, after the hanging of Sykes. Yes. Retribution, the little dog, you see, that little end touch, the yes. dog. Yes, yes, yes. And, of course, the dog had followed him all the way mm. since the murder, and uh, 
in the novel he tries to get rid of the dog, he tries to get hold of it and tie a brick round it and throw it in the river and the dog backs away, but keeps... And of course keeps the crowd, going. the crowd pursuing Sykes. Mm. Yes, yeah. yes. And that's a marvellous little piece of description because yeah. it's so very short, that crowd outside, yeah. that you, you just feel the atmosphere of the people. Because what Dickens, Dickens doesn't horse around, does he? When he, he, does, does, he doesn't. When he does drama, <laughs> a melodrama, he yeah. just... It goes to town. And that's, what? What, that's what I like about it. That's why I enjoy doing his own adaptations. Now, Emlyn does his own adaptations. Oh, yeah. And they tend, I think, to be more on the lyrical side, the quieter, the softer side. But I, what I try to do is to think of how Dickens himself performed them. And he was reckoned to be a good actor by a famous actor called MacReady. Of the George MacReady. Yeah. He, he was a friend of Dickens mm. and reckoned him great. In this Sykes and Nancy, mm. when he first saw it, he said to Dickens afterwards, it was like seeing two Macbeths upon the stage. Mm. In reading about reviews of Dickens' readings, I'm just curious, uh, I suppose he was flat, and doing it, he probably over as he, as he wrote the Sykes scene. Whereas Williams, being the deft actor, he is looking mm. for nuances, you see. Mm. Williams may do it a little more subtly than Dickens. Yes. I'm just curious. Yes. And, they may, and Williams also didn't choose Dickens' own. No, no, until he no. chose his he, own. He, well, being, uh, being a writer himself, yes, oh. um, uh, Emlyn says that uh, he thinks Dickens chose the wrong bits. Now, I'd like to compare myself. People say, you know, what about you and Emlyn? And uh, I always think, of, I remember hearing Gene Kelly talking about uh, about Fred Astaire uh, on a on a chat show in England, and he said, "You know, well, Fred is the top hat and tails man, and I'm the sort of rather mm. rough cut." And I always think, Emlyn's Emlyn is the um, is the Fred Astaire mm. of the Dickens, and, and I'm Kelly. the Gene Kelly. Yeah. <laughs> he also does, you know, Mr. Chops. Oh yeah, that's a beautiful. He does that beautifully. Yeah. But he would choose, whereas you stick more to Dickens' own repertoire. Yes, the repertoire yes. he chose when yes. he read. Yeah. What is one? Perhaps uh, one to end our all too brief session with you. We just touches. We have the uh, humorous one, Sam Weller and his father's advice on writing the Valentine. Then, of course, the dramatic Bill Sykes murder of Nancy and his escape and and retributive death and now you said something about Captain Murderer Captain was, Murderer it's little known who was Captain Murderer well he was uh, this comes up in uh, the book Uncommercial Traveller which is a series of sort of reminiscences and notes and what have you and uh, Captain Murderer was the the hero if you like to put it that way of a bedtime story that his nursemaid used to tell him Dickens nursemaid Dickens nursemaid mm. when he was when he was a kid and uh she was a strange lady because she delighted in telling the rather gruesome stories. Yeah. And uh, when he was ill, you know, she used to say, well, if you're a good boy, I'll tell you a nice bedtime story. And this was one of them that he remembers in Uncommercial Traveller. And, and now, uh, Captain Murderer, you imply, just as a little leading, was sort of a bluebeard figure. He'd yes, marry, He'd yes. marry a lot of girls. <laughs> But then something happened. Then something happened to them, yes. It, it's, um, uh, when I first started doing it for the school children in America, um, 
I knew that you'd had the musical Sweeney, Sweeney, Sweeney Todd. Todd. Sweeney Todd. And so I used to introduce it by saying to the children, do you know the story of Sweeney Todd? And they all said, yes, yes, because some of them had been to see the musical. And I said, well, funnily enough, Dickens wrote a little story very like that. And this is the one, this is Captain Murderer. This has something to do with something. pudding. That had to do with pudding. This has to do with pastry. Uh, pastry. And yes. the contents. Yes. Uh, so that's Captain Murder. And yes. Dickens put this in the commercial traveler. The uncommercial traveler, yeah. Yeah. Yes. When I was a child, I had a nursemaid called Mary Weller who delighted in telling me bedtime stories. Mary's taste in bedtime stories were rather the macabre type, especially when I was ill. And she had one particular story that she always told me in those circumstances, saying to me, Now, Master Charles, if you're a good boy and take your lovely medicine, I'll tell you a lovely birth bedtime story. Well, I knew this story by heart. I knew it word by word and could repeat it with her, but I couldn't resist it. So I would lie back in my pillows and take the n nice medicine, like a good boy, and wait for her to start. Once upon a time, Master Charles, once upon a time, those magic words that to a child open up a whole fantasy world of adventure. Once upon a time, Master Charles, there was this gentleman called Captain Murderer. Well, Captain Murderer must have been the first diabolical character who intruded himself on my peaceful youth and must have been an offshoot of the Bluebeard family, though I had no idea of the consanguinity in those days. Well, his warning name would appear to have caused no general prejudice among the uh, people, for he, he was admitted into the best society and he possessed immense wealth. Well, Captain Murderer's mission in life, dear, was matrimony and the gratification of a cannibal appetite with tender young brides, dear. Now, on his marriage morning, Captain Murderer always caused both sides of the way to the church to be planted with curious flowers. And when the bride said, Oh, dear Captain Murderer, I never saw flowers like those before. What are they? He answered, They're called garnish for house lamb. <laughs> and the way he laughed at his ferocious practical joke, displaying for the first time a very sharp row of teeth, disquieted the noble bridal company. Now, Captain Murderer always married in a coach and twelve, and all his horses were milk white, <laughs> with one red spot on the back, which he caused to be hidden by the harness. For the spot would come there, though every horse was milk-white when Captain Murderer bought him, and the spot was young bride's blood. Well, when Captain Murderer made an end of the feasting and revelry and had dismissed the noble guests and was alone with his wife on the day month after their marriage, it was his whimsical custom to produce a golden rolling pin and a silver pie-board. Now, there was this special feature of the captain's courtships, he always asked if the young lady could make pie crust. And if she couldn't by nature or education, then she was taught. Well, when the bride saw Captain Murderer produce the golden rolling pin and silver pie board, she remembered this and turned up the lace silk sleeves to make her pie. Then the captain brought out a silver pie dish of immense capacity. 
and the captain brought out flour and butter and eggs and all things needful except for the inside of the pie. Of the materials for the staple of the pie itself, the captain brought out none. Then said the lovely bride, Oh dear Captain Murderer, what pie is this to be? A meat pie. Oh dear Captain Murderer, I see no meat. Look in the glass. She looked in the glass and still she saw no meat and the captain roared with laughter. <laughs> and suddenly he frowned and drew out his sword and bade her roll out the crust. Well, she rolled out the crust, dropping large tears upon it all the time because it was so cross. And when she'd lined the dish with the crust and had cut the crust ready to fit on the top, the captain called out, I see meat in the glass. And the bride looked up at the glass, dear, just in time to see the captain cutting off her head. And he chopped her into pieces and he peppered her and salted her and he put her in the pie and he sent it to the baker's and he ate it all and picked the bones, dear. Well, Captain Murderer, went on in this way, prospering exceedingly, until he came to choose a bride from two twin sisters. At first he didn't know which one to choose, for though one was fair and the other dark, they were both equally beautiful. But the fair twin loved him, and the dark twin hated him, so <laughs> he chose the fair one. The dark twin would have prevented the marriage if she could, but she couldn't. However, on the night before it, much suspecting Captain Murderer, she stole out and climbed his garden wall and looked in at his window through a chink in the shutter and she saw him having his teeth filed sharp by the family blacksmith. Next day, she listened carefully all day and heard him make his joke about the house lamb and that day month he had the paste rolled out and he cut off the fair twin's head, dear, and he cut her into pieces and peppered her and salted her and put her in the pie and sent it to the baker's and ate it all and picked the bones, dear. Now, the dark twin had had her suspicions much aroused by the filling, the filing of the captain's teeth and again by the house lamb joke. And putting all things together when he gave out that her sister was dead... She divined the truth and determined to be revenged. So she went up to Captain Murderer's house and knocked at the knocker and pulled on the bell and when the captain came to the door said, Oh dear Captain Murderer, marry me next for I always loved you and I was jealous of my sister. Well, the captain took it as a compliment and made a polite answer and the marriage was quickly arranged. On the night before it, the bride again climbed to his window and again saw him having his teeth filed sharp by the family blacksmith. Well, at this sight, she laughed a terrible lie uh, at the chink in the shutter. And the captain's blood curdled, and he said, Oh, oh, I hope nothing I've eaten's made me disagreeable. At that, she laughed again, a still more terrible laugh. <laughs> and the shutter was opened, search was made, but she was nimbly gone, and there was no one. Well... Next day, they went to into church in a coach and twelve and were married. And that day month... She rolled the pie crust out and Captain Murderer chopped off her head, dear, and chopped her into pieces and peppered her and salted her and put her in the pie and sent it to the baker's and ate it all and picked the bones, dear. But before she began to roll out the paste, dear, she'd taken a deadly poison of the most awful character distilled from toad's eyes and spider's knees and Captain Murderer hardly picked her last bone, dear, when he began to swell and turn blue, and to be all over spots and to scream, dear. 
and he went on swelling and turning bluer and being more over spots and screaming until he reached from the floor to the ceiling and from wall to wall and then at one o'clock in the morning he blew up with a loud explosion, dear. Good night, Master Charles. Pleasant dreams. Because <laughs> what's good about this is the interpolation is, dear, after a particularly gruesome sequence and Charles, it's a sweet bedtime story told by this gentle elderly lady. And so the revenge of the dark-haired girl twin, the revenge is... She didn't mind being killed and cannibalized, <laughs> but she ate the poison that got him. Yeah, she was a little, um, a little sick, really, wasn't yeah. she? Yeah. <laughs> so that's the way. He'd... It's funny how how those stories work. I wonder uh, the Sweeney Todd fable that became a music hall song, and here's Dickens' Captain Murder. I suppose one borrowed from the other. Yes, right? it's the same. All those melodramas, the. Uh, um, the famous ones in in England were uh, Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber, and uh, Maria Martin, the Murder in the Red Barn, where the the squire murders the young girl who's got into trouble, and her mother dreams of where the That's body's hidden. That's a classic. One. That's a classic, and. Um, Oh, the drunkard was another of the old. And I suppose dramas. the Jack D. Ripper story, the Jack Ripper stories, to Jack the Ripper stories. Yes, they must. Yeah. They've sort of built yeah. into the you know, um, an actual Jack the Ripper, you know, cases yeah. and that sort. But they've all they sort became of became part of mythology the, too. Come into the mythology of of the. Crime. But in this case, it's the gentle bedtime story. It's a lovely told story told by the nurse. <laughs> He's dead. It's have pleasant dreams, dear. <laughs> so you do these readings. Where it generally in, uh, at schools? Uh, here, yes, yeah. um, at uh, schools. And um, I was up uh, last week, the week before, I was at New Paltz College in, mm -hmm. um, in New Paltz. And um, I was also at uh, Mohonk Mountain House mm -hmm. doing an after dinner. They, had a, they decided to have a Dickens weekend. And I was engaged to do that for them. So it's the readings. Yeah. And you do a sight in these and Christmas Carol, a variety of others. Yes. Mother uh, of, of for the um, For the QE2 trip, I did uh, an excerpt from American Notes about his trip mm. to America because he first visited America 140 years ago mm. in 1842 and, funnily enough, travelled on Cunard Line's first steamship, the Britannia. Mm. So there was a little tie up there. And uh, the I did it because there were a lot of um, Philadelphians on the uh, on the QT, which was making her maiden voyage to Philadelphia for mm. the centenary celebrations. And they thought it'd be nice if I did something like that. And it was very amusing, sort of comparing <laughs> the lack of comfort of his day yeah, with the yeah. sheer luxury oh, on the QE too. Well, listen, George Harlan, my guest, I want to thank you for graciously offering your readings and I we might close I'll find a piece of maybe Sweeney Todd or some music hall ballad of Dickens Day yeah. and uh, this is it and I thank you very much indeed thank you very much indeed it's been a great pleasure to meet you thank you